You're listening to Ensemble, a podcast that creates learning experiences for the next generation of leaders and thinkers. My name's Sean Benolio, and I'm sitting down with thought leaders and experts to talk about today's trends and ideas that are shaping the future. Ensemble started with the vision of bringing executive level learning experiences to the next generation of emerging leaders and entrepreneurs at a fraction of the price. And after nine successful shows on everything from cannabis to esports and the future of cities, I'm sitting down with the co founders themselves to talk about their favorite moments, past highlights, and the future of the podcast. So we're sitting down here with Mike Gurgis and Baron Manette, and we're going to play our first clip from the future of cities, and we're going to listen to Greg Henriquez talk about a citizen city. What is a citizen city? The vision of a citizen city is one that transcends traditional urban goals of economic stability and working infrastructure and allows for the inclusivity of its people with a variety of economic levels, different cultures, and diverse identities. Essentially, what we're talking about is loving everyone, including everyone, embracing everyone. So the idea of a citizen city, that's news to me, and I think maybe our audience too. Do you guys want to jump into what that means? Maybe uh, dive deeper into what Greg was saying. Well, we, um, we were really excited the idea of the topic of the future of city because the, you know, where we started Ensemble is in Toronto, which has experienced so much growth, uh, just urban growth, um, immigration growth, but also business, you know, business growth and physical real estate growth, right? So, and Greg and his team are leading this phenomenal development in Toronto called Mervish Village. And he really brought the idea that we thought those, the way he thinks about citizenry in a city, and he has this great book called Citizen City, is that cities of the future need to be designed with humans in, in mind first, rather than thinking about the other constructs that historically might be building size or square footage or maximize profit opportunity. He's actually, his team's thinking is taking it from what do the people who will live in our buildings need and the communities need, and let's build that, and that will make more demand for the properties, for the developments, and ultimately make a bit a better city to live in. He's based out of Vancouver. He's working all over the world. Uh, I think a lot of his value structure aligned with how we think about Ensemble, right? That everyone's part of Ensemble and how do we make everything we do think about our audience? I think he's taking it at a much higher level when you're designing urban ideas for the future. How do we start with the human and build out? And it was exciting to see his scale of thinking when you think about a future development in a major global city that's going to probably house 10,000 people when he's done. Toronto has the largest growth as a major city larger than U.S. cities. That's right. Like The scale um, of growth. Exponentially higher mm-hmm. than, than its counterparts or, or, or comparable cities in the U.S. So that kind of thinking is probably the most important thing right now. Yeah, I think that, you know, when you think about, you know, what makes a city more dynamic and livable, you know, whether cities we travel to or the cities we decide to call home, we have so much opportunity in this city uh, from where we started to the way people and thinkers like Gregory are are designing the next evolution of of where we're going to live and 
keeping in mind of how we want to live. Designing infrastructure with a human first element to it is very important. Well, and we had a lot of wonderfully talented uh, architects and developers that wanted to speak at Ensemble for this topic. The interesting thing about Greg's development is the majority of it is rental. So it, you know, to your point, it's not just designing um, buildings and environments and communities to the highest bidder. It's livability that allows for mixed-use space in terms of commercial and residential, but also different income streams. Mm -hmm. And how can we all live together in this great city? Just to, to touch a little bit more on the future of cities is, have you guys heard about this promenade development, right? Thornhill, mm -hmm. local mall, uh, bought out by uh, some, some private uh, development company, now being turned into a massive mixed-use residential commercial space mm -hmm. uh, you know kind of echoing the vision of the citizen city so I think we're it's it's alive and well and we're seeing it play out before our very eyes which is exciting yeah it's um, it certainly seems to be the the way of the thinking for the future rather than if you build it they will come mm -hmm. what does the audience need and let's build that collaboratively yeah. and it's great to see and I also love the sustainability aspect of it, right? Preserving the environment, pre preserving the atmosphere, creating a greener tomorrow and a more sustainable future, which is just great. Mm -hmm. We have subbed out Mike Gurgis and we're joined by the awesome Andy Marshall. So we're still talking about the future of cities here and we have a great clip coming up uh, about mapping the consumer behavior from Jed Schneiderman. He had a really good topic about how you map urban infrastructure, where people are moving, and how you design from the inside out to understand where people are going to be. And uh, we're going to go ahead and listen to that right now. So I work in the location-based marketing space. I'm essentially a failed slash mediocre marketer. Uh, the company that I work for, what we do is we sort of help companies um, map consumers where they go, where they live, and then ultimately um, use the data that we collect from phones um, and other sort of devices in order to map consumer behavior. And so when you think about the context or the theme of tonight about how people move about cities, I kind of want to try to land um, three points within about the next two and a half minutes. So the first is um, we map where people go. And when you think about what people do in cities, understanding where they go, where they live, and where they work, as we've heard from some of the previous speakers, becomes an interesting data point. We work with real estate companies, QSR chains, those that are trying to understand the flow of people so as to predict where they should do marketing, where they should open up new locations. And so our software ena enables brands to understand where people live, things like income, age of home type of car. And when you start to look at that, you can essentially take up a city, as Mike alluded to, as Andrea alluded to, sort of essentially break it up into these grid-like patterns and then ultimately make better decisions about marketing, about a very a number of different aspects of business. So very interesting conversation points from Jed Schneiderman about using big data to build infrastructure and how uh, consumer data is used to map uh, infrastructure inside of a city. What Jed highlighted for me in his talk was, on one hand, the opportunities as brands and marketers that we have to maybe understand consumer journeys. I don't know if that automatically gives us the right to advertise on those journeys. I think, I think permission and awareness are two really important things that need to catch up. So A, I think we all need to be more diligent in our digital literacy of, of, about, uh, of a, how we manage our data. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, hearing, um, I'm hearing experts talk about data charters 
and um, you know and personal data commitments now just because I think a lot of people haven't given it enough thought in terms of I have this phone and where does all that data go where that data is quite valuable I take I think a bit of a um, laissez-faire realistic approach to privacy and data you know I use Google Maps every day I use Gmail you got I a Google use Home? iTunes. I don't have a Google Home. So that actually that's a great question. That's where I draw the line was with the Amazon Echo and the Google Home. I think that's becoming pretty obvious that you're putting a microphone in your house. I have although, one in my bedroom. Although our phones are microphones in our house. Yeah, I was just gonna say, house, you know, if you're willing to dip and your so, toes in the pool, you might as well jump in. I think this in. is it. I think that's it. It's like, well, if you're gonna go a little far, why not just go all the way? And so you know, I never read the terms and conditions on iTunes. I never read the terms and conditions on any app that I purchase. Shame on you. You know, we can really kind of go far and say that data is kind of a, a myth that a lot of us believe in, I think, for security purposes. Does it really matter that Google knows where I am every day? To me, not really. It's helpful for me to use Google to beat traffic and to get here a little bit quicker on one road versus the other. It doesn't really bother me in terms of them tracking me down, but I, I know people who still have the old school pieces of tape on their computers. And, you know, on the little, mm -hmm. on the little I, uh, I got a little window kind of right thing. on mine here. That's so. fine, so like, and why? Why, well, I think, uh, you know, you hear the stories, you hear the, you know, the legends, the, the tales of people watching you through your, your webcam and, you know, spying on you through your recording device. Fortunately, I've never known anybody who's had that happen to, but I think that they're enough of a deterrent to, to push people to make these choices about their own privacy, their own data. You know, my father just got a brand new MacBook. The first thing he did, piece of tape over the mm -hmm. webcam. You know, what we're really talking about is how do you make sure it stays within your personal control? Mm -hmm. Like, so... I think tape across the screen is a lo-fi way yeah. to have control. <laughs> it's effective, right? But I think, you know, and to be fair to Jed Schneiderman, who runs a great company called EQ Works, and he's a, just a tremendous mm -hmm. uh, friend of Ensemble, but he's also just a really smart digital marketer. Um, I think Jed's point is around making sure that there's clarity and transparency of the value exchange between data and mobile. And uh, so I thought his talk in the future of cities was really apropos because more and more data usage and how we follow traffic patterns in city will impact the livability of those cities. So it was great to have him on, uh, have him on stage. Yeah, I think uh, he had a wonderful outlook on the way that uh, infrastructure should be built out and how we can use technology to, to go about doing that. We're going to take a few minutes to talk about Ensemble 9, The Future of Wealth. We're going to listen to a clip by Don Desjardins talking about the attitudes of wealth in Canada and how that's broken down, what they feel and, and where their values lie. Here we go. Well, RBC uh, always interested in our clients and, and what people are thinking about. Um, so they undertook a survey with the Econ Economist Intelligence Unit, and they wanted to see the attitudes of high wealth individuals about, you know, what they see as wealth and what they think about wealth when they they look into the future. Um, and so, more than half of the millennials who were in this survey said. Yeah, we think of it totally different than our parents. We're totally different. And so when they dug a little deeper, they said to the people um, they surveyed, so they're all high net worth people, and they said, okay, so what words come to mind when I say wealth to you? And quality of life 
from both cohorts uh, was what they responded. Um, it's also interesting that both cohorts also said that they're far more interested in spending their money on experiences than they are on material goods. Both about three quarters of uh, the people surveyed said that. So kind of begs the question, like, how different um, is it in terms of what they're thinking of wealth? So we thought we should look at, okay, if everyone's telling us that wealth means to them a quality of life, what is Canada providing um, to, to you know, see if we're supporting that? So it's an interesting topic from Don Desjardins. She's a sponsor of Ensemble, correct? Yeah, well, RBC is uh, our founding sponsor, yeah. and uh, you know we, we can't thank them enough for helping to sponsor our, our last two seasons, which help keep the ticket price uh, as low as it is. Don is the deputy economist at RBC, so it was just great for our audience to get such a senior uh, experience perspective when we're talking about what's the future of wealth with uh, our audience in the room, like what's, what's wealth gonna look like in 40 years? You know, and how are we going to think about wealth? And the great thing is, there, what was interesting in, the, in all the speakers is the future of wealth is not really about money. You know, it's all these other things that I think um, your generation is teaching us, right? In terms of, it's about experiences. Mm -hmm. It's about quality of living, yeah. not necessarily about how many boats you have or how many houses you have. So I think the definition of or the traditional way wealth has been marketed aspirationally to boomers, you know, versus when we get our young ensemble audience in the room, they're not looking for, you know, walks on beaches when they're 70 years old. First of all, they want to go to those beaches now. They want to travel now. And they, you know, so a lot of what came out of that volume was, I don't know if I'm ever going to stop working. I think part of that is the age group they're at now and how they see the world. But it was really interesting to see what that audience values in terms of what, which really is the definition of wealth, and um, what's going to be important to them. So I thought Dawn brought a great macro perspective of our topic that we were able to then bring other speakers in and um, have great conversations around based on their areas of specific expertise. Definitely. I, I was actually at Ensemble the future of wealth and I heard her speak and she was very granular in the way that she understood wealth and that how RBC had played a, a role in assisting people with planning for the future of wealth and understanding their own wealth and what that means to them. She mentioned in the clip, how is Canada providing a quality of life when it comes to wealth? I want to see, get some insight from you on that. Well, uh, you know, I think Canada's in an interesting, interesting position, you know, A, because of our social, social safety net that, you know, hopefully helps a little bit but at the same time Canada is one of the top 10 leaders in the world in terms of access to education and I think when we look at the next generation of you know our generation Z which was a large percentage of our audience for this specific ensemble volume 9 um, how that audience thinks about wealth and what they have access to based on their levels of education is I think inextricably linked um, so I think the idea of wealth in our country is going to change versus definitions in other countries that don't have what Canada offers. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, if you look at, you know, what um, a majority of Canadians don't want to talk about, it's money. Definitely. And it's a big reason is because a majority of Canadians are having trouble balancing their finances and planning for the future. So you talk about the future of wealth and then you have someone on Dan who can moderate a panel of 
you know, emerging leaders. That's really interesting, especially, you know, folks who are in their teens, early 20s right. to talk about how they're approaching finances, how they're approaching investments, even a conversation that's super candid around, hey, do you think university is going to be worth it for you? Or would yep. you rather take a job and travel for a while? There's a moment in the panel when Dan asked the attendees, who would you invest in? Right, mm-hmm. hands up or hands up. That was great. And that was really enlightening because you'd, you'd think you know, some of the companies, we don't need to go through the whole battery of them now, some of the companies you might think these are tech giants that everybody would want to get a piece of, no one would want to invest in, in them because of the level of trust around their purpose and altruism. So mm-hmm. that's an interesting takeaway as well. Yeah, I think my big takeaway was um, you know, generationally now the future of wealth was around choice mm-hmm. and real success comes down to choice where I think historically you deprive yourself, you save and scramp and then when you're older you'll go on a beach get or you'll, relax you'll get to do it. And I think this new, uh, the younger audience that is in the ensemble crowd I think they're just so much smarter. And they're like, you know, mm-hmm. why does it have to be so binary? Mm-hmm, is totally. Why do you have to work for 50 years and then do it? Can't we do a little bit of everything? Yeah, and totally. I think we have a lot to learn from this audience. I thought it was one of the most enlightening ensemble volumes we've had today. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. And I think Dan, as a, as, a, as a millennial, I'm 25, I think Dan really spoke to me in, in terms of the way he broke down traditional versus non-traditional wealth yeah. gap. Sandy, you echoed that statement as well. You know, Dan really jumped into the statistics of what the uh, definition of wealth means for somebody with a traditional uh, educational background. Uh, and so I wanted to ask you guys, how do you think the importance and the future of wealth is going to factor in with non-traditional education? Mm-hmm. Companies like BrainStation and Udemy and Coursera offering non-traditional courses, how, how do you think that's going to affect the future of wealth? Well, there's just more, I, the way I think of it is, it's a great question. There's more roads now. There's more avenues, right? So it used to be, uh, you know, as Sandy said, you know, somebody from a gen, like myself from a Gen X point of view, you go to high school and you go to, you want to be successful, you're, you're basically told you have to go to university. Uh, some people go to college, and but historically, we kind of look down on that choice of university versus college, which I think is a giant mistake. As somebody who's now a college professor, and you know, so I think there were it was the consideration that was there was only one way to do it, right? And anybody who was an entrepreneur was considered a rule breaker, or a rebel, or oh, I hope it'll work out for him or her. Whereas now, I think. The f- when the future of wealth and you know these different learning opportunities, there's just a lot. We're starting to understand now that there's just a myriad of way of people learning, and so there isn't one model that you'll only be successful if you go this road, or you'll only be su- or you'll you won't be successful if you go this road. The future of wealth is what are you bringing to the table? Yeah. I think the future right. of wealth is not as much around wealth in terms of finances; it's wealth in terms of experiences life events and what are you bringing to the table to contribute to your community and to society there used to be this idea that you'd have four jobs like when i was coming out of school we get this lecture you're gonna have four jobs in your career so you better be ready for that pace of change (laughs) and now you think about the pace of change that sean like you and your Mm -hmm. your your groups are going through at that age you know whether it's whether it's uh, millennial whether it's generation c the jobs that you're going to do in 10 years, there's a good chance those jobs don't exist today. And how do you learn for them? So you need to have the muscle of ongoing learning. And yeah. I think people who embrace learning are naturally in a position to feel more overall holistically wealthy. Mm-hmm. I think the idea for me, the takeaway from volume nine is wealth is all encompassing of a goal. It is not just a financial goal. 
And I think we often just talk about it in a financial goal, but I think it's an outcome of decisions that we've made over the over time. I want to jump ahead a little bit to talk about the future of truth. December 4th, big yes. show coming up, the mm-hmm. 10th, 10th yeah. live show in the speaker series. Let's mm-hmm. uh, let's pick your brains a little bit. What are you excited for? You know, What can you give away to the audience without giving away too much? Well, yeah, you're talking about the future of truth. Truth is relative. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, what I think is true is different from what you think is true. Yeah. And so we're talking about the future of that. Which is and it's funny. When I was growing up, there was truth and there was not truth, right? Yeah. And it was it was black and white. And now you're hearing people like Sandy say, well, isn't truth, isn't it my truth? Because is that truth? Or like I was brought up, that's an opinion, yeah, right? It's subjective. So, but now it's, these lines are all kind of blurring. So, and I think, um, I think the internet has had a huge impact on that. I think, Social media. I think the last... 10 years of political climates in North America have had mm-hmm. that. Um, if you look at 2018, the word of the year in 2018 is misinformation. The word of the year in 2017 was fake news. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm lucky enough to be invited to do a fair amount of speaking in, from a marketing perspective to audiences. And I'm of the belief now that we believe that we are being lied to constantly. We are constantly, as audiences, believing that we are going to be let down. So the brands that are actually breaking through and the companies that are breaking through to earn trust are people who keep their promises. Mm-hmm. Like we can all remember the, the last time somebody didn't keep their promise to us. That's for sure. Um, so, you know, I don't know if I want anybody to tell me anything anymore. I just want people to keep their promises. And so mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm looking for truth from companies, you know, like, you know, uh, I think Patagonia is a great example mm-hmm. of that in transparency. I think RBC is a good example of that. I think TD Bank's a good example of that. I think there's a number of companies that are playing at that level. I think at the same time, the goalposts around the idea of truth are moving. Mm-hmm. And so we're really interested. I'm not sure I know the answer yet. So we're really interested in the discussion around where's truth going. And, uh, you know, we're just coming off a Canadian election that was pretty bitter across all parties and sides. Uh, we're looking at, uh, at the border with our neighbors in the United States, and they're gearing up for another election. Mm-hmm. Their last election was pretty raucous, and it looks like this one's going to be as well. Mm-hmm. And then you factor in political discourse, truth and lies, and the Internet. And, you know, more and more, I think people believe what my friend tells me because we don't know where mm-hmm. the trust barometers are anymore. And so I'm going to ask Sandy, hey, do you think this is true? And so... I don't know if those constructs are set up for success, and you know we want to talk about that. I think, uh, I think for volume ten, or you know as we're calling it, Ensemble X, is uh, we're really excited that our friends from Vice are going to join us to participate in this conversation. They don't; they're really comfortable pushing boundaries as we are, and uh, we got some new people in the worlds of research and policy that are going to talk to us about where the dial is moving on trust. But um, we're super excited about it, and I think. The reason I'm most excited is uh, our audience asked for the topic. So based on the feedback of the last nine, they said, we really want to hear more about this topic. And A, we appreciate our audience who, you know, if it's not for them, we wouldn't be here or be on this podcast. Um, but it's so great to have them at a level where they feel that they want to share their voice. And, you know, we have an obligation to support that. So mm-hmm. we're super excited about December 4th. Definitely. I think that uh, the date couldn't come any sooner, right? Uh, we're hoping... Not for uh, us, yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, thank you guys very much 
for Thank being you, here. It's Thanks, been a great, uh, a great recording session, and uh, we look forward to the next one. Just to remind the audience out there, Ensemble X, The Future of Truth is happening December 4th at the We Global Learning Center. And if you head to EnsembleCo.com, enter promo code PODX, you will save $10 off of the ticket price. Thanks for listening to the show. For more information on this topic or more like this, head to EnsembleCo.com. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star review. 